podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hi everyone, um, I'm Ochatra and welcome to another episode of Money Talks and I've got an absolutely packed agenda um, to discuss a lot of big topics at a time when Liverpool finds itself in a real sliding doors moment, a moment which really will in many ways um, change the course of this club over the coming years and uh, depending on the outcome of some of the items that we will be discussing um, that the club could be in for some amazing times or some altogether very different times. And who better to discuss these topics with than a man that um, is not short of an opinion or two, um, but also understands the game, um, both in terms of what goes on on the pitch as well as off the pitch, as good as anyone. It is the one and the only Dave Hendrick. How are you doing, Dave? I'm good, mate. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, yeah. I'm, um, not too bad, just uh, in, enjoying this lovely weather that we're all experiencing. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's, uh, and I'm also um, glad that the uh, the World Cup is coming to an end this weekend as we record this. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we'll be back to uh, having some domestic uh, football to enjoy um, before long. So, yeah, all, all fun and games. Yeah, it will be nice. Uh, number one, it'll be nice to see the ground rather than the sheet of frost and, and other nastiness that's all over the place. And um, with the, the Premier League and such coming back, it'll be nice for me anyway uh, on two-footed to have, you know, actual content to talk about rather than having to make it up as I go every day for six weeks, which is what has been the case. But uh, no, I thought, I thought this would be fun to do today because obviously we did the transfer committee pod recently and yeah. obviously a big topic to come up on that was our finances and the ownership and can we afford the players we want so i thought what better way to talk about that in more detail than for us to get together and do this yeah totally absolutely and uh yeah i mean it, we, i think we're about six weeks six and a bit weeks on now since um the news broke uh, david ornstein of the athletic was the first one to uh, break the news that uh FSG um, were exploring the possibility of um, selling either a stake or the club outright um, uh, to to other uh, other investors, and uh, you know this was the first time um, that news had broke publicly about FSG potentially being open to an outright sale. Even though you know, as I've touched on on this podcast over the last few years privately they have been open to a sale and and the truth is is that 
you know, not long since they bought the club, um, they they have always been open to a sale. They bought it as an investment of three hundred million, and if somebody was to come along, say two years after they took over in twenty twelve and offered them, say one and a half billion, even at that point, um, it'd be foolish to think that they wouldn't have accepted an offer of, of that uh, magnitude. So, you know, that is something that you know is they've always been open to, but they have become even more open uh, to a, a, a potential outright sale um, to to other outside investors. And what we will do, Dave, um, is we'll, we'll we'll talk about what that could mean for the club in terms of um, you know all, all all the different aspects, such as you know what funds might be available for transfers and whatnot, but. The way I look at it, there are a few different outcomes here. There is the potential, clearly, for no sale to occur and for the status quo to remain if FSG don't receive anything that they think is worthy of either an outright sale or a minority um, sale um, in terms of a share of the club. Then they might just carry on and think, okay, let's give it a couple of years and then see what the market's like then. The next thing might be sale of a minority investment, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 percent, who knows. Then there's a possibility of an outright sale to owners that might look to operate the club in pretty much the same way as FSG, which is for the club to be entirely self-sustaining, i.e. no owner investment into the club or what you know some have deemed or termed FSG max, which is um, the FSG model, but with some um, owner investment into the club. So if, if uh, the manager wants to make a, a signing um, of, of a really high-profile young player and the selling club is looking for the bulk of the transfer fee to be paid up front and the club's finances don't allow for that, um, then the owner or owners might be willing to put that money up. Um, and, then, and, and then the final um, outcome, I think, is potentially a sale to um, either an individual or a group who have unimaginable wealth, who are potentially in uh, the ballpark um, in terms of resources um, to compete with um, the owners of Newcastle United, PSG, Manchester City. Um, But obviously with that comes other considerations, other issues as well. So... Of all of those different outcomes then, Dave, at this point in time, what do you think might be the most likely outcome? I do think they want to sell outright. I think the talk of, you know, oh, we might hold on to it, oh, we might just do minority investment, to me that seems like posturing. Yeah. That seems very much like, you know, we're not desperate for the cash, so unless you're going to pay us our asking price or close to it, we're not going to budge. I believe they want to sell, and I believe they want to sell for a very specific reason. If we think back to when they sold, was it 10% of the FSG group to Redbird Capital, that money, the reason for that sale, was to enable them to go and buy the Pittsburgh Penguins and add that enterprise to their portfolio. Well, right now there's talks going on at the NBA regarding the potential for expansion. And there are two cities that have sort of been, well, it, 
in truth, there, there are three cities that have been tagged as the potential expansion destinations. The likelihood is that there would be two expansion franchises, both in the Western Conference, meaning two Western teams would move to the East, probably Minnesota and Memphis, but that's neither here nor there. The two, the, the three areas would be Seattle, who once had the Supersonics, who got bought and moved to Oklahoma. Seattle has a ready-made fan base. It has an arena. It has history. It has a name. You mm. walk in, it's ready-made, day one, and you just you just run with it. The others would be Las Vegas, and we've seen in recent years Las Vegas get a an NHL expansion, the Las Vegas Golden Knights, and we've seen the NFL move to Vegas. The Oakland Raiders became the Las Vegas Raiders. And the third one is Mexico City. And the, the NBA have been trialing games in Mexico City for a number of years. They've just put a G League, which is their development league. They've put a G League team down there to see how it goes. There's huge interest in it. There's huge wealth behind the push for a Mexican team. Now, if there's a Mexican team, people like Carlos Slim are already in situ and already kind of ready to go and invest and take over. But the others, so if we get a Mexican team and an American team, Seattle, I believe, will go to local investors. But Vegas is where FSG come in. If a team goes to Vegas, it's likely to be driven by Fenway Sports Group. That's the franchise they've long been linked with yep. in partnership with LeBron James. And LeBron James has spoken quite openly about wanting to own a franchise in Vegas. The other thing that might have kicked this into gear, though, is that Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns, has been investigated and found to have acted improperly towards staff, both towards women, towards people of color. And there's a variety of different complaints made against him. And basically, the, N the NBA have told him, you need to go. And he has agreed that he will sell his stake in the Phoenix Suns. The right. Phoenix Suns are one of the marquee franchises because it's Phoenix, it's Arizona, it's a place where a lot of players live in the offseason. It's a very attractive destination for players to go. And FSG have been linked to the potential of buying Robert Sarver's share. Now, Robert Sarver is believed to be looking for about $2.2 for his share. Now, he doesn't own the whole franchise. The franchise was recently valued at around $4 billion based on the trends of NBA sales in recent years. His would come to about $2.2 billion, and yeah. that is where FSG would need the money. Right. Okay. Um, interesting. And uh, on top of that, there have also been strong rumours that uh, Fenway have been exploring the possibility of uh, buying into an NFL franchise. Yes, the Washington Washington Commanders, formerly the Washington Redskins. Yeah. Their owner is also an absolutely appalling human being by the name of Dan Snyder, who, like Robert Sarver. There's been years and years of allegations about how he treats people, about his behavior, about the language that he uses. And he is, it's a little bit tougher for them to force him out because there hasn't been the length of an, like the type of investigation that there has been with Sarver in the NBA. But there's been enough 
there's been enough done to show that he's not a suitable person mm. to own an NBA franchise. But the the issue here is he's quite a powerful person in NFL circles, and he does have the backing of some of the other owners. And nobody, we've had one case where Jim Irsay, who owns the Indianapolis Colts, he came out and said, it's possible that we could look to, you know, remove, because the owners own the NFL and the owners own the NBA. The commissioner is just the commissioner. It's the owners that are the power holders here. But the other owners would have to vote him out. And the the belief is that people are f- afraid to speak up against Schneider because Schneider's the type of guy who will hold dirt on others and he might expose them. So that's it's a little bit tricky to get rid of him. Now, there's also the factor that there are other immensely wealthy people interested in buying the Washington football team, which the commanders is a stupid name, the Washington football team, uh, one of which is a is a, is a, um, a group that involves Jay-Z and a couple of other high-profile people like that. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's the NFL franchise that the, the FSG have been linked to. I think the NBA is an easier path for them, but the NFL is where you really want to be because that's the real money spinning league. Like that's that's the league where you'll make enormous amounts each and every year. And unlike the NFL, there isn't a collective bargaining agreement that states you have to give 50% of all basketball related earnings to the players. So in the NF in the NBA Every penny that's earned from basketball-related activities, so TV revenue, sponsorship revenue, ticket sales, all of that gets put into a pot and is split 50-50 between owner and players. And for the players, it's basically what they can earn in terms of salary. The NFL is slightly different. Their salary cap works slightly differently. It's it's not as... I think it's like 40% goes to the players, 60% goes to the owners. And the owners in the NFL make more per annum than the owners in the NBA. Right. So very lucrative, therefore, either league uh, for owners, in stark contrast to the Premier League, where um, by and large owners, if anything, tend to put money into their clubs rather than the other way around. Um, The Glazers being um, largely exceptions to the rule, whereby they, as we know, take dividends out of Manchester United and we'll come back to the Glazers and United later on. The other um, area of investment that we know FSG are looking to uh, spend money on, raise funds for indeed, is something called Fenway Corners. And that's again something I've mentioned here on Money Talks. Um, This is a 2 million square foot um, development. It's real estate. It's an area around Fenway Park in Boston, uh, which would be a multi-purpose um, development, including office space, retail, um, uh, housing accommodation, public realm, etc. And again, that is not going to come cheap. And they obviously will not look to fund it entirely themselves. They will look to bring in um, other investors um, as part of a consortium to deliver this project. So this is a project that's already gone through planning and um, it's a very, very ambitious project. Um, But again, as I say, this is not going to come cheap. So in between spending on that as well as, um, you know, either an NBA or an NFL franchise, 
um, that there is clearly a need for funds. So I agree with you completely. And any suggestions in the media that um, you know that they're you know happy to just, if anything, sell a minority stake in the club? I, I think is just posturing, like you. I, I think it's just them sending a message that look um, any offers that have come in thus far aren't meeting our expectations. If you want to take the club outright from us, raise your offers. Mm. So I, I think that, that that's the kind of game that's being played at the moment. And that's exactly the kind of message that I'd expect them to put out publicly through the media. Um, of course. So, like the, the the Fenway Corners project, I believe, is going to cost about $2 billion And it'll yeah. take, you know, between five and seven years to complete. So that's that's going to be a big, big, you know, um, out, uh, outlay for them. And they don't have that kind of cash to hand. So, again, yeah, I, I would imagine if they could sell us, you'd see a sizable portion of the money go to that and a sizable portion go towards some other investment. Absolutely. And then the final thing is that, um, you know, discontent with Fenway is not just exclusive to this side of the pond when it comes to certain sections of the Liverpool fan base. Um, even fans of the Red Sox have been getting increasingly irate with FSG in the last year or two over a perceived lack of investment um, uh, over there when it comes to that uh, um, baseball franchise. So, uh, again, you know, there is an increasing clamour for them to start putting their hands in their pocket uh, or, or finding some means by which um, to invest more in, in into the Red Sox as well. Yeah, now it, look, it is worth pointing out that there are there are no more entitled group of um, of fans anywhere in the world than Boston sports fans, be it the Red Sox, be it the Celtics, be it the Bruins or the Patriots. The Patriots have won yeah. six Super Bowls; they've had a couple of down years, and their fans are are, are whinging and crying. The Red yeah. Sox, it is worth remembering, since. FSG bought the Boston Red Sox. They are the most successful franchise in Major League Baseball. They have won four World Series. The San Francisco Giants have won three. Yeah. I think the Cardinals have won two. And the Houston Astros have won two, including the most recent one. The New York Yankees, who spend all the money in the world, they've won one. The New York Mets, who spend all the money in the world, they've won zero. The yeah. LA Dodgers, who spend recklessly, they've won one. So their model has worked. And baseball is the type of sport where you do go through cycles. And it's very easy to go from worst to first. You, you'll you see teams be bad for a number of years. Like, for example, the Houston Astros were absolutely awful for a period of time as they bottomed out, stacked up draft picks, cleared off their cap sheet, and put themselves in a position that as their young players started to develop, they could go out and and get high-profile, top-level players. Like, they got Justin Verlander at one point, who was one of the best pitchers in baseball. He's now gone to the Mets, but they got what they wanted from him. They got a World Series from him, you know. And Boston have done the same thing a couple of times, where they've sort of dropped off for a couple of years, and then rebuilt and come back and won. The the big complaint with Red Sox fans is they allowed Mookie Betts to go. Mookie Betts was is probably the best position player, so non-pitcher, 
that the Red Sox have had in, I don't know, 40, 50, maybe long, 40, 50 years, maybe longer. But Mookie Betts is 30 years of age. He was 27, pushing 28 when they let him leave. He's a smaller player, and smaller players who are power hitters don't tend to don't tend to hold up all that well. Now he's also an incredible defensive player. It's worth pointing out, but he went to the Dodgers, and the Dodgers signed him to a twelve-year, three hundred and sixty-five million dollar contract that is going to pay him up until the age of forty. Right. The Red Sox did not want to commit to paying him $30 million a year to the age of 40. And for me, I think that's smart business practice because the likelihood is that contract, based on the history of these types of contracts in Major League Baseball, that contract is going to be a very painful thing to pay out on in the last four to five years. And the Red Sox have had some big swings in free agency in the last decade. And when they've gone wrong, it's cost them a lot to get off those players. So they signed Carol Crawford from the Tampa Bay Rays to a seven-year, I think it was a $120 million deal. And it didn't work. And they signed Adrian Gonzalez, I think from the San Diego Padres, to a similarly big deal. To get rid of those two players... They had to give up really good assets, really good young players to send them away. So they're just, they're very cautious since those type of deals on not committing huge salary. They also had, is it Pablo Sandoval? They paid big money to a free agency. He didn't work. Hanley Ramirez didn't work out. So they're, they're very cautious when it comes to giving out big long-term contracts because like I said, the cost of getting off those contracts is is prohibitive. So this year they've lost um, Xander Bogarts, another homegrown player, uh, another absolute star, one of the better players in Major League Baseball. Uh, he has gone to the San Diego Padres. But again, it's a 11-year, $280 million contract. So you're talking about he's 30. When he's 41, he's going to be earning uh, $26 million or something a year. And that's just not something the Red Sox want to get themselves into. Because yep. the other side of this is they may someday decide to sell the Red Sox. And a Red Sox franchise loaded with bad long-term contracts like that is a less appealing thing for somebody to buy. Because when you buy, you've already got this headache of, what do we do with these contracts? So I get why Red Sox fans in recent years have been complaining. But at the same time, you've won four World Series. You hadn't won for 90 plus years before they took over. So shush. And the Liverpool fans choosing to find the odd tweet by a Red Sox fan as some sort of weird one-up on FSG. Like, oh, look, I found this evidence that these don't like either. Like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't follow American sports. And mm. I would beg anybody who wants to talk about baseball to actually know about baseball, know about the league, know about the trends, know about these contracts, and know about the success that they've had. Look, there's loads of reasons for us to hammer FSG, loads of them. But their stewardship of the Red Sox is not one of them. 
because they're the most successful team. It would be like us turning around and saying, Are you that person who has everything? The coolest merch and those must-have fan threads? Well, over at our Anfield Index shop, we've gone that extra mile when it comes to pimping up your Liverpool collection. From our popular range of bespoke design t-shirts, sweaters, hoodies and hats, to our signature edition mugs, prints and coasters, all provided with fast worldwide shipping. We have something for every red. We also stock official LFC merchandise and are licensed with the Premier League and UEFA to sell official iron-on shirt badges and sleeve patches. As a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off everything with coupon code AIPRO10. Just head over to anfieldindex.shop or find us on Etsy by searching for Anfield Index. Jesus, Real Madrid are having a bad year. Just have, like, say Real Madrid finish third next year, this season, and go out to the Champions League in the quarterfinal or whatever, or out to us in the next round. Be like us turning around and going, what, what a joke of a club. Look at the state of them. Oh, oh, they've won how many Champions Leagues in the last 10 years? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you know, like, you've got to factor in. Yes, they've had a number of down years, but they've won four World Series, and that's the be-all and end-all. They're the most successful franchise in baseball over the last 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Now, obviously, over the last six and a bit weeks since the news first emerged, um, all manner of different um, individuals or groups have been linked with um, takeover of Liverpool Football Club. Um, Now, one of these groups, um, which is a group that you on uh, Twitter have been um, advocating for is is HBSE Harry Splitzer Sports and Entertainment. These are the individual. This is the group, the consortium, that currently has a. I think it's a majority stake in Crystal Palace, and they also own the uh, Philadelphia 76ers as well as the New Jersey Devils. So, what is it about this group then, Dave, that you think would make them? That perhaps the ideal or the, or the better fit amongst those that have been linked to the club thus far. Okay, so just to be clear, it's a minority stake they have in Palace, not not a majority. So it's an, it's okay. easy for them to to get rid of that stake. Right. So here's the thing with with David Blitzer and Josh Harris are the, are the two main entities behind this. So David Blitzer owns Bronby, part of Palace, Augsburg, Alcorkin. ADO Den Haag and Rail Salt Lake, and there is another club that he owns. Um, so he would bring a multi-club model to the club, which is something we've always talked about wanting, is mm. something similar to what the City Football Group have. Um, a network of clubs where we can, A, send players on loan, or B, we can buy players through from South America or whatever if we want to give them you know, a, a, a proving ground in Europe. And then we can get favourable terms to bring them to Liverpool. So you could set one of those clubs, let's say Augsburg, because they're in the Bundesliga. Let's say you treat them as your Red Bull Salzburg. And we are your Red Bull Leipzig. So that's the proving ground. And if it works out, we buy you off them for, you know, whatever. And it's also a way around FFP, of course, as well. We're not having all that kind of outlay. These other clubs can be used in that regard. But you've got very beneficial loans as well that you can send out. So 
if a player like let's say Musilowski, the young Polish winger, yeah. well, he he needs a proving ground. So why not send him to Bromby? which Denmark has become quite a hotbed for developing talent in recent years with Mittelland and Nordlesjand and uh, Copenhagen. So why not send them there? If there's a young English player we'd like to maybe see him get first-team minutes a level above the Championship but below the Premier League. Oh, well, why not send them, send them to Augsburg? Tyler Morton, you've had a great season at Blackburn. We don't think you're quite ready for the Premier League, but you could go and play for Augsburg for a year, and we'll see what where you stand after that. So that's the first thing. I really like the idea of a multi-club model. When I look at what they've done with the Philadelphia 76ers, they tore the place down and they rebuilt it. And they rebuilt it into one of the best teams in the NBA. They did that by appointing Sam Hinkie and going through an analytics approach, which is obviously what we would like to do. They had what they called or what they termed the process, which is we're going to be as bad as possible for a couple of years. We're going to get all the high draft picks and we're going to build a great team. Now, they weren't the ones making the final decision when it came to who to draft. So the fact that the Sixers made a couple of mistakes, I don't think is their fault. But other people might disagree. Joe Connors is a Sixers fan. He might disagree, but I would look at it and say, you should have drafted, say, Brandon Ingram over Ben Simmons, and you should have just held on to the third pick and took Tatum instead of Marcel Fultz. So, um I think they've done a pretty good job with the Sixers, turning them into a perennial contender. They spend a significant amount of money. They're always one of the highest paying luxury tax teams. They've got ambition to go and get the best players. So when James Harden became available, they went and they made that move to bring him in. When Daryl Morey, who's probably the most highly regarded general manager, in the NBA after Masai Ujiri, when he was looking for an out from Houston, it was them who stepped in and said, well, come and run our franchise. So they they value analytics, which is why they've gone with Sam Hinkie and they've gone with Daryl Murray. So that, that fits with what we want. We want that analytics-based approach. They bring a multi-club model. They bring, I believe, ambition. If you look at the New Jersey Devils as well, they're also... Um, paying high salary they haven't had great success there and I would say the one area that they need to improve on is they need to improve on the people they appoint to run certain areas of their franchises but coming into Liverpool you've already got Jurgen Klopp in situ you're looking for a new sporting director that may well be done and decided before anyone else takes over anyway so that might take all that headache out of it but I think they bring ambition, they bring a willingness to spend, they bring a desire to win, and they bring that multi-club model. Now, a lot of people have a lot of people have rushed to tell lies about these people because they don't want another American. Mm. And what they've done is they've created these fantasy worlds about these people. So they've gone on Crystal Palace message boards and found posts from three and four years ago like a handful of them not loads a handful of them criticizing these owners what they failed to realize is that the financial situation at crystal palace dictated that crystal palace couldn't do a whole lot but look at what palace have done in the last couple of years look at how they've turned their squad over look at the investment in youth look at the new academy look at the investment in analytics and look how improved they are. And look how more modern they are under Patrick Vieira. 
And that has been driven by David Blitzer. So for those Palace fans, those firstly, those posts are from years ago. But secondly, Harrison Blitzer have only really taken on a more hands-on approach in the last couple of years. What they've also done is they've termed HSBE as a as a hedge fund. It, it's not a hedge fund. It's oh. nothing like a hedge fund. It's just a vehicle to purchase assets. It's what it is. It's an ownership model. Yeah. So that's a lie as well, that it's a hedge fund. Then they want to turn around and say, well, they don't have the money. HSBE only has X amount of cash on hand. Right. That's operating cash for the enterprises overseen by that group. So then they say, oh, well, it would be a leveraged buyout. But that's a complete lie because the history of Harrison Blitzer shows they don't do leverage buyouts. They just don't do leverage buyouts, nor do they need to because they have their own personal wealth first and foremost, which is a combined in and around 10 billion net worth. But also you have to remember who's behind them. So when Todd Bowley bought Chelsea, Todd Bowley didn't buy Chelsea. Todd Bowley was the face so that Clear Lake Capital could come in and buy Chelsea. Well, who are David Blitzer and Josh Harris? Well, David Blitzer is a senior ex executive at the Blackstone Group, which are a private equity firm. And they have revenue, annual revenue, of about 22.5 billion. They have total assets of about 41 billion. Josh Harris is one of the founding partners of Apollo Global. Apollo Global have total assets under management of about 30 billion. These are investment firms. That's where the money would come from. It would not come from a leveraged buyout. It would be these type of groups funding Josh Harris and David Blitzer. That's where the money would come from. It would be a similar type of buy to how Todd Bowley bought Chelsea, except I would imagine Harrison Blitzer would actually put in a bit more of their own money. Bowley didn't put in a whole lot of his own because he didn't have a whole lot of his own to put in because it's all invested in the Dodgers and the Lakers and a few other places. So the lies about these these individuals has, has really wound me up over the last while because they're such blatant lies and they're so easily disproved. But when morons put them out on social media, they immediately get hundreds of likes and people take that information and think, well, that's the truth. So I've seen people like tweets about leveraged buyouts mm. and then I've seen them go into other threads on Twitter and say, oh, would it be a leveraged buyout and repeat verbatim what they've read elsewhere when there's no evidence it would be a leveraged buyout. In fact, all the evidence points to it not being a leveraged buyout because that's not how these guys operate. Right, interesting. And, um, you know, with the Chelsea ownership as well, um, just last year, in 2021, the, uh, this is Crystal Palace, they did sell 40% of their um, stake to an individual called John Texter. So he's another individual, another American businessman that um, entered the fold. So I don't believe he's part of that group, but he, he works with them. So do you think there's any possibility that he might also join with um, Blitzer and Harris um, to move over to Liverpool. Yeah, it's very possible. And there's a few other 
there's a few other people that could be. So <clears throat> um, John Texter is also the owner of uh, Botafogo. I think that's the other club that Blitz is yes. involved in. Is Botafogo yeah. in Brazil? He also owns a club in Belgium called RWD Molenbeek. Now David Blitzer, like I mentioned, also one of his um, one of his clubs is Real Salt Lake, and he owns Real Salt Lake with, with a guy called Ryan Smith, another very wealthy man who also owns the Utah Jazz. So it's very possible that they could get the likes of John Texter, the likes of Ryan Smith involved in this because they all have existing business relationships. They're all very close. This wouldn't be a thing like with, say, Hicks and Gillette, who didn't really know each other all that well and kind of got put together by a puppet master. Like, oh, I'll take your money and your money and we'll go and we'll do this. These guys already have existing long-term relationships. So, yeah, I I do think that... um, that Texter and Ryan Smith are, and I said at the time, when, when this first got announced, I did a Daily Red, and Harrison Blitzer were the group I mentioned, and I said, watch out for Ryan Smith's name to come up in this as well. I didn't think of David Texter at the time, but he would certainly make sense, and I think he is the type of man who would like to be involved in this. He seems to have a real interest in, in football. And that's the thing here as well, is, these aren't like FSG when they first came in, where they've got no knowledge of anything. They're not like Hicks and Gillette, who didn't know what football was. They, these yeah. are guys who have worked in football and have a track record in other sport as well. And that can be a, of big help when it comes to growing the reputation of the club. You know, yeah, yeah. doing partnerships with the Sixers the Utah Jazz, the the Devils, whoever. So, yeah, I think this this type of group would be your FSG+. Plus. I think right. they would be similarly analytics-driven, but more ambitious and more willing to go that extra mile when it's needed. And that, I think that's, like, we've spoken about this before, Mo, like, We've never wanted anyone to come in and spend Man City type of money. All we were ever asking for was like, maybe every second year there's like another 30 million for a player. You know, ideally every year maybe there's one more player in that kind of 25 to 30 million pound range who can come in and and add to what we have because our issue has been since we won the European Cup, we've always left ourselves short going into the fo- the following season. Yeah, and if we true. had somebody who could just make up that shortfall, uh, we'd have so much more success. Well, you know, I mean, I've I've posted on Twitter over the last several months with certain criticisms of the ownership. Um, one of which has been that, in my view, there's been a lack of investment in the squad um, since. Well, post-2018. So 2016 to 2018, we all know the club spent extremely well. And not only that, um, they spent a lot of money to boot. So that was great. But after that, um, there seemed to be a change of tact that, okay, look, we've got a very good squad now, so we don't need to be spending a lot of money. And uh, let this uh, squad do as much as it can, and then let's take stock at a later point in time. And so we've had successive summers now where, in my view, again, there has been 
not enough spend. And I'm not saying that we should have gone out and spent money on five or six players every summer. Of course not. But even one additional quality, young, exciting prospect each summer, um, 2019, 2020, 21, and this past summer, four players, um, as you as you mentioned earlier, about 25, maybe 30 million Um that would not have broken the bank. That would have no. been feasible and achievable. And with that, four players um, who may have come in. So even if you go back to signing a 20-year-old, 21-year-old back in the summer of 2019, three and a half years on, that player would now be 24, um, you know, 23, 24, coming to the prime years of, of that player's career. And ideally would have been a midfielder as well. And it would have mean that, meant that the likes of somebody like Jordan Henderson, would have not played anywhere near as many minutes as he did this season. And somebody like James Milner would not even be at the club anymore. And yet here we are where we've got an aging and an aged midfield. Uh, and, and that has been one of the biggest areas of weakness for us this season. All of that can be avoided just mm. by literally a single additional decent signing each summer over the last four summers. And yeah, but I mean, it, it's, it's not just that. I mean, look at, look at the other areas. Joel Matip is, is 31. Virgil's 31. Mm. Um, Bobby's 31. Mo is 30. We've, we've got quite an old team and we held on to players for too long. Like we, we went into a situation where we had Sadio, Mo and Bobby all entering the last year of their contract together. How was that allowed to happen? How was one of them not sold two years ago? I know there was COVID, but there was still opportunity to sell Sadio Mane for a significant fee. In the end, we got pennies for him. Now, he hasn't done great since going to Bayern, but two years ago, we would have got off the back of winning the title. When he was the best player in the league, we could have got $100 million for him. There's no way we couldn't. Easily. Yeah, you know, Bobby would have brought a good fee a couple of years ago. We let Ginny Wijnaldum, Emre Chan, um, Albi Moreno all run down their contracts. That was Daniel Sturridge. Daniel Sturridge. Yeah. Now you're looking at Naby Keita and Alex Oxlade Chamberlain. Like all combined, that's probably two hundred million worth of investment. Now I know it's all been. Um, with, with amortization, it's all been sort of written off, so their, their, their value, their book value is nothing, but that's not good squad management at all. How were these players allowed, like Lovren, how was he allowed to stay so long? He was garbage. Mm. Why did we keep him so long? Lalana, another one that we wasted 25 million on, and he was allowed to stick around for six years and leave on a free. Like, how was this allowed to happen? And that's where I think it's really interesting how the Moneyball stroke analytics driven approach to um, squad management seems to have been eroded over the last several years. Because I can't believe that if we were operating in a completely um, objective analytics driven way in terms of squad management, that some of those players would have stayed as long as they have. And then um, we wouldn't have invested enough and therefore left us in a position where, you know, by the end of the season, you know, close to half of the first team squad will be 29 or over. Um, yeah. I just don't think that that would have been possible if the model was being applied 
completely and utterly in the way it was meant to have been. And I think that is also part of the reason why John um, Mike, Mike Edwards is Michael Edwards is no longer at the club. Yeah, I have, I completely agree. I, I think there was there's there's two main reasons why Michael Edwards left the club, and I think it's because he was having to fight on both sides. He was having to fight with the people above him, and he was having to fight with somebody who technically though not in reality, is below him in the the pecking order of the company or in, in terms of the, you know, the uh, the line of management. He yeah. was having to argue with Klopp over certain things and he was having to fight with the owners over the, the lack of funding mm. because there's no other way that this would have been allowed to happen that, you know, and one of the reasons Klopp has had to cling on to certain players who he deems reliable and or he, he likes to have around is because he hasn't had the opportunity to replace them. He's tried. Like, he has tried to replace them, but there's been, you know, unfortunate circumstances like Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain's knee injury and Abby Keita's persistent muscle injuries. Mm. These have these have hurt us as well, but these players should have been sold two years ago. They, they shouldn't still be at the club. As much as I love Naby and we're a much better team when Naby plays, we're... Why is he still at the club? Like, why is he still at the club? Why is Ox still here? Mm. I can't imagine that these lads wouldn't rather be playing regularly somewhere. But, you know, when I hear Klopp say things like, well, I can't just tell players to leave. Yes, you can. And you know you can because you've done it before, both at Liverpool and at Dortmund. What you're saying is you can't tell them to leave because you don't think you're going to be allowed to replace them. Mm. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, and that you know is part of the reason why I have been more critical of the owners in the last couple of years because I think that at a time when we were in a position of strength, you know, we should have built on that success. We should have um, really put everything in place to ensure that this squad was going to be exceptionally strong for the next five, six, seven, eight years. Mm. Which, again, through proper management of the squad over the last uh, three, three and a half years, in my view, was absolutely achievable. I just can't believe that it was um, financially not possible um, to have done more than we have done. I, I just can't accept that. And one of the things that you know I give as an example is um, the fact that we spent 56 million um, in uh, club revenue on, on the access training facility. Now, we as a club have the opportunity to, for example, um, just spread that cost out over a number of years, uh, which may have only cost you know five, six, seven million, um, rather than fifty-six million over the course of about fifteen, eighteen months. And and again, some of that money could have gone in towards um, investment into into the squad. Mm. Um, so you know there, there are ways and means by which um, the club could have operated in a different way. Well, but again, that, we this we, is where we, I think the ownership like. This is this is one of the things when I talk about lack of ambition. Like mm. between the two stands, the the main and the Annie Road and the the Axa, what, what's the total cost that we're spending? Um, so it's coming up towards two hundred and fifty million pounds. Right. So obviously the main stand is done a long time now. At this point, um, it was. It was in work before Jurgen took over, um, but the the other two they've been done since we won the European Cup, right? So what are we yeah. saying about 150 million between the the Anfield Road and the AXA? 
Yeah, that's right. However, um, even with the main stand, it was a loan that FSG took out. It wasn't their money. It was money that... No, that's exactly it. But what my point is, the club are paying for these, not the owners. Yeah, yeah, correct. But the FFP and profit and loss guidelines allow for the owners to pay for them, not the club. Mm. So the owners could have just paid for them. Hello. I'm here to annoy you. I'm here to annoy you into listening to more of me and more of others on EPL Index. We don't just have the Anfield Index stuff. We've got EPL Index as well, which covers the entirety of the Premier League. And we have three podcasts and a whole bunch of really good writing on EPLindex.com. The podcasts are my own two-footed podcast, which is every day at 4 p.m., Monday through Friday, covering the whole league. We have a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. You know Tadiwa, he does Anfield Index. He presents a Tad Predictable before every Premier League match week. And then Kevin DeVries and his crew on the EPL Roundtable, they're every week after the Premier League match week. So make sure you listen to everything we're doing on EPL Index and follow us there on Twitter at EPL Index. Thank you. Bye-bye and used the money that the club ended up having to spend on them on players. Now, wouldn't $150 over the last couple of years have gone a long way towards fixing the issues in the squad? And the owners could have just paid for them. Like, this, this is my biggest gripe with them, is that all of these things, the AXA, the main stand, the Annie Road, yeah, they're great for the fans, they're great for the club, but what they're mostly great for is the value of the club. So the owners have used the club's money to raise the value of their asset. The club aren't getting that money back. When they sell, they're not going to say, oh, well, here's your share. They're going to say, thanks a million, good luck. They've used the club's money that should have gone towards improving the team to improve the value of their asset. And that's what bothers me more than anything. It's great that we have a training ground, though. Let's not forget, while the AXA is is very, very good, it was the cheapest way to do it. While the Anfield Road looks like it will be very good, it was the cheapest way to do it, and the main stand was the cheapest way to do it. So it's not like they've gone and gotten us the very best of the best. Leicester City's training ground, for example, is more highly thought of than our training ground. And they uh, and their owners spent more than double. Yes, uh, and, and he spent that money, not the club. He yeah. spent that money out of his pocket. When yeah. Roman built Chelsea's training ground, he spent the money. You mm-hmm. know, what we've done is we followed the Arsenal model. And look what happened to them. Mm-hmm. When the club started paying for assets that the club didn't own because the owner owned them and the owner would sell them with the club, that's where they got into trouble. So this is my main gripe with FSG is like, I understand that you wanted to improve the value of your club, but that should have been your investment, your money, not ours, because our money should have gone towards improving our team. Your money should have gone towards improving your asset. And like it that's it's the difference between 
one league title and one Champions League, or potentially two league titles and three Champions Leagues over the last couple of years. Because nobody will convince me we weren't the best team in Europe last season. We were better than Real Madrid. We were better than Man City. We lost out on both because we didn't have enough investment in our midfield. And people can deny it all. They went, oh, we got to every single game. Yeah, we didn't win. We would have won the league title last year with a better midfield. We would have won the European Cup final with a better midfield. And in the pandemic hit uh, season where we won the league title, the European Cup was wide open. As it was the following season, a very average Chelsea team won the European Cup, but we didn't have any centre-backs that year. The year before, we had Adrian in goal for a major Champions League game. And this lack of investment has cost us multiple major honours. Multiple major honours. And that that is where that money could have gone and the owners could have funded the the structures and the the infrastructure of the club, and the money the club was rate was earning itself, that should have gone towards buying players. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely preaching to the converted here. Um, you know, that, that's a again a criticism I have levelled against FSG um, over the last couple of years. In that, you know, that there certainly seems to be a a bit of a case of falling asleep at the wheel. Um, admiring the work that you've achieved mm. even th- perhaps if it's been through the labor of others and um you know that is a, a dangerous pitfall not only in football but in any form of competitive sports that you know as soon as you have a team that is exceptional the last thing you do is is stop and admire how, how great it is because yeah. tomorrow it can be a very different story so that, that again. When we won the European Cup in 2019, we were the best team in Europe, and our opportunity was right there to put our foot in everybody's throat yeah. and and enter an era of dominance, and we haven't done it. I know we won the league title the, last, the following year, and that, for many people, was enough to win one league title, but I don't know what club those people support, but they don't support the same club I grew up supporting, where second place is the bad years where when you're second you're nowhere that's the club i grew up with that's the club that bill shankley bob paisley kenny dogleash and others built this idea of you know one league title in 30 years and we should all bow down and thank you no absolutely not Mm. like that this is where we needed to be more ruthless and more aggressive and more ambitious and we won a european cup and spent four million on two kids we spent four million on two kids. Yeah, uh, and that summer, that summer, um, you know, I, I remember it well, uh, and you will as well. We had a preseason tour of um, the US. It was, I think, the International Champions Cup. Is that what it was called? We yeah, played, I think so. Um, we played. Um, was it Sporting Lisbon? Um, Bruno Fernandez used to play for them. And, uh, you know, you know when um, Jürgen Klopp rarely rates a player and he embraces a, an opposition player in a certain way, that's what he was doing to Bruno. I, I very much felt that he was keen on Bruno at that time, um, but clearly that deal never materialised. And that was an ideal time to bring in a player of that ilk, even if it wasn't Bruno. Um, but Br- Bruno was available, and obviously just a few months later, he headed off to United instead. And... Um, 
you know, that was at a time when United looked like they were completely out of the running for top four. Bruno single-handedly turned their fortunes around and scraped top four for United and, and single-handedly... And, and then carried off. them to second uh, the next year. Completely, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Mm. Um, just one last thing on John Texter that I, I, I omitted earlier on. Um, he also owns Leon, Olympic Leon. Wow. So, you know, he's 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 a, a fairly major player now in, in world football with a major club in Brazil, although they're in a in a, a down spell at the moment, not because of him, it was before he took over. And he, he owns Leon now. He he finalized that purchase um I believe earlier this year. Right. So you know, it's uh it's he's definitely someone that could be involved in that sort of of group with Harris and and Blitzer and and mm. Smith and and maybe th- those four with the backing of Apollo and Blackstone. Yeah, I, I just what like obviously the, the the what what people what some people want is they want city type ownership. Now I can see the merit in it, of course I can, but at the same time we know that a, a lot of people will say, oh, well, I'm not, I'll not support the club. Now, most of those people are lying. And most of those people, when it comes down to it, will still continue to support the club. They might do it from afar as opposed to going to games, but they will continue to support the club because the club means too much to them. Yeah. But those type of uh, regime ownerships, you know, like the Qataris, the Saudis, I, I'm not necessarily in favour of, one of them myself if we could find a mega rich individual from the middle east i'd have absolutely no problem with it but the problem is most of those mega rich individuals from the middle east tend to have quite strong connections to those regimes and and often are dictated to by those regimes but like for me it I, i was looking at you know realistic scenario i think fsg will look to sell to another American group and we're seeing a growing collection of American owners in the Premier League. There's just been another one now with Bournemouth being bought uh, funnily yeah. enough by the guy who owns the Las Vegas Golden Knights. So it, it, this is kind of the trend right now is that a lot of Americans are putting the money into the Premier League. And and that's just what I expect to happen is that is that that's how this turns out is that we get more American owners. And, I think you don't just judge them on their nationality, though. You ju- you have to judge them on the individual merits of the people and their track records. And I think the track record of Harrison Blitz is pretty good, so that's why I would be I'd be on board. Okay, and uh, you know you touched upon you know other um, parts of the world where investment could come from, and again a strong link has been made in terms of a potential consortium between um, individuals or investors from Saudi and Qatar. And um, up until not long ago, (laughs) the two countries were, um, you know, not only economically and diplomatically, but in other ways, um, at complete loggerheads. So, you know, there's been a thawing of that um, frosty relationship um, in in more recent times, and um, they, they seem to be working, cooperating more closely than they have been in the past. But, you know, as we know, with Middle Eastern um, foreign policy, um, it, it can be turbulent. And, you know, tomorrow, again, you know, those relationships could be fought. So mm. that, that 
concern in terms of any potential um, coming together of um, investors from Qatar and Saudi, even though obviously the expectation would be that uh, in terms of owner investment, that, that that would be the one that would potentially bring the most. Um, though again, what you don't want is that to come with um, owners who, who try to influence um, decision-making in terms of recruitment. And, you know, we are seeing some of that with, with Chelsea. So even though Bodhi is the front man for that, for that group, um, he, he does seem to be um, getting perhaps a bit too heavily involved in recruitment decisions. Um, you know, certainly made a major play to try and bring in Ronaldo last um, summer and that failed. Uh, but even with some of the other recruitment decisions that Chelsea have made, longer term, you, you wouldn't look at them and think that that, that was smart decision making like Aubameyang, for example. Um, so, you know, that that would certainly be a concern is that if... if um, owners with with incredible wealth do come in um that that's all well and good but if if they try to influence decision making when you know they're not really in a position to do so that 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 could be very counterproductive um but you know we'll, we'll certainly keep an eye on that situation as it develops mm. it is unlikely though that uh any announcements about um deals agreed in principle or anything of that nature come this side of christmas um you know, we're probably looking at January, February at the earliest before any significant movement does occur. And then it could be, you know, into the spring, even in uh, the summer before the sale completes. And that's if it does. Um, but, uh, yeah, all, all um, to play for when it, come, when it comes to that situation. Um, now, um, on the subject of um, ownership, um, our biggest rivals in Manchester United, um, they were put up for sale very shortly after... Um, Fenway, um, Fenway's interest in potentially selling the club outright uh, uh, went public, and uh, you know again that is a sliding door moment for Liverpool Football Club because if United end up being taken over by individuals with incredible wealth and are potentially on a similar footing to um, a Manchester City and a Newcastle, then in terms of Liverpool's position and its ability to compete for the major honours um, potentially could be adversely affected by that. However, um, what we do know is that um, whereas it is reported that Liverpool are potentially up for sale for something in the region of about £3 billion, um, it is believed that the Glazers excuse me, are looking for a much higher figure, mm. potentially six or seven. So, again, with that, Dave, um, what do you see as a likely outcome from that situation? Do, do we actually think Manchester United are really for sale? Um, when when they're asking for six or seven billion, and that also comes with an enormous debt of 580 million or something on top of that? Yeah. And then you factor in that their training ground is extremely outdated at Carrington and yeah. hasn't been hasn't been touched since the 90s, um, since they moved from the cliff to Carrington. They haven't done any upgrades on it. Mm. Old Trafford is badly in need of enormous renovation, which is probably another five, six hundred, a 600 million pound project. You're you're really looking for somebody. Let's say they look for six point five billion, plus you've got to walk in and clear the debt. So that's seven billion, 
you've got to fix up the stadium that's 7.5 you've got to do the training ground you're looking at about 7.6 billion in total yeah. Manchester United Football Club is not worth 7.6 billion billion pounds to anybody it just isn't um well, it's, re- it's revenue for um last season um looks like it would have been slightly below that of Liverpool yes so Liverpool is worth 3 billion then how is United, whose turnover now is pretty much on a level pegging with Liverpool, worth double that? It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. And if we look at even something as, sim- as simple as the, the Forbes valuation, Forbes valued Liverpool at $3.6 billion in May of this year. That's pounds. Yeah. They value Manchester United at, at $4.6 billion around the same time which at that point was about £3.7 billion. So they valued Manchester United about £100 more than Liverpool. And yet the Manchester United ownership group think they can get double what the club is worth. My actual belief is that if the Glazers got the offer for that kind of money, they would, of course, grab it with both hands and run. But I don't necessarily believe they're actually looking to sell the club. Because that club is a cash cow for them. Because they milk millions and millions out of it every year. And whenever they fancy just making a little bit more, they do one of those weird share sales things where they convert some of their shares and basically split them and sell them off and and pocket the money while retaining complete control of the club. I don't believe Manchester United Football Club is actually for sale. I think this is more, they're putting it out there that if somebody wants to give them a ludicrous sum, they'll take it. But otherwise, I think this is just a distraction method to take the fans' eyes. Look look how happy United fans are. Mm. Remember the last time they were this happy? It was when they signed Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. The time before that, it was when they signed Paul Pogba. This is what this is what United do. They yeah. go look at the shiny thing over here, and while all the fans are gazing at the shiny thing, they're doing something untoward in the other direction. I don't believe United are genuinely for sale, not mm. at that price. Now, if they were to come down to four and a half to five billion, maybe, but Jim Ratcliffe has been quite open about the fact that he tried to buy the club. Now, Jim Ratcliffe is a fairly intelligent man. He's a, he's a nasty Tory and a Brexiteer, but he's a fairly intelligent man. Yeah. But he's not paying no $7 billion for United. He's not taking on that, that debt, and he's not going to pay for a new stadium on top of it. And, by the way, the $500 million is a renovation. If United decide to build a new stadium you're talking well over a billion. Nobody's taken on to do that. Nobody. Nobody's going to be that stupid. Like, you you could spend all that money, do up the stadium, do up the training ground, and then get the club valued and realise you've spent two billion more on your asset than it's actually worth. Even with a a, a fancy upgraded stadium and a new training ground and the team performing better... The likelihood of United being worth seven point five billion anytime soon is just completely unrealistic. Mm-hmm. So, like, I I could see in in ten years that they might be worth six 
seven, but not seven and a half. And that's in 10 years. So you're taking on to own the club beyond that, plus all the investment you're going to have to make along the way. It's just not going to happen. I don't believe they're actually for sale. I think they're kicking the tires, but I think it's more a distraction method than anything else. Yeah, and again, it'll be interesting to see how that all pans out. Um, you know, it is reported that there is interest in them. I mean, so, some of the reports have been completely ludicrous. And the, the stuff about Apple and Facebook Apple, and Amazon, these companies Apple. aren't going to buy a football club. Like, let's not. If they're going to buy a, a sporting enterprise, they're going to buy an American one. If Jeff yeah. Bezos is going to buy something, he might buy that Seattle-based NBA franchise that I mentioned. He yeah. might buy the Portland Trailblazer, something like that. Facebook the same. They they might look to buy, I don't know, the Sacramento Kings or something. They're not going to come and buy a Premier League club for that kind of fee. And just you meant we we mentioned the the likelihood of a Middle Eastern investor and and you know those the, the kind of regime buys because United fans are all excited about some reports that uh, the Qataris might sell PSG and buy United or Liverpool. Let's be really honest here. They're looking for four billion apparently for PSG. PSG are not worth four billion. They're not worth half of four billion. When those type of ownership groups, your Abu Dhabi, your Qatar, and your Saudi Arabia, when they go to buy a club, they're looking for a club that is low value with growth potential. They're not looking for the finished article. They're also looking for fan bases that have had no real success to cheer cheer on. If they can find a fan base that's had more relegations than trophies over a 50-year period, that's where they'll go because those people are easier to sports wash. There's a reason the Saudis bought Newcastle and a reason Abu Dhabi bought Manchester City because those were clubs with big potential, but they were not successful clubs they were not high value clubs i think didn't saudi paid 350 i think abu dhabi paid about 280 for a city like that that's the type of price point they're looking at if if another if qatar wanted to buy into the premier league they're, they're more likely to look at a wolves or a nottingham forest or a sunderland as an example yeah. than they are at a Liverpool, a Man United, an Arsenal. Like, there's a reason none of those groups were involved in trying to buy Chelsea. Because that's not the model of club that they buy. Mm. They buy clubs where, when they have success, they're the reason for success, and they're lauded as the bringers of success. And people go, they did what in their own country? Oh, well, we don't care. No, no, we won an FA Cup over here. That's that's what they do. That's where their model works. And like I said, PSG are not worth four billion. They're just not. Like you could buy every club in France, and I don't just mean in the first in the top flight. You could buy every club in France for four billion. The league's not worth that much. The TV revenue is minuscule. So nonsense. Yeah, I mean, even if with PSG, if you look at their turnover, yes, it's very high, but. That's largely because the bulk of their um, sponsorship comes from Qatar. Qatar. So if exactly. you strip all of that money out, um, the, the actual revenue that's generated by legitimate means is probably less than 
a couple hundred million, probably a lot less than that. Uh, and uh, even, yeah, even City, with a lot like of if, that you, rev- if you were to buy City, all yeah. of the revenue goes away as well because it's all fake. It's all yeah, fake yeah. revenue. Mm. Completely. Um, right. So um, just a couple of quick um, topics to cover before we conclude, Dave. Um, one of which, returning back to Liverpool, is um, that we have seen over the last few weeks a number of departures. Um, so just in the past uh, day or two, we've seen the par- partnerships manager uh, manager um, move on. Um, so this is a chap called Ed Rice. And um, just prior to that, again, in the last several weeks, we've seen announcements that the likes of um, Julian Ward, who replaced Michael Edwards, um, you know, he's resigned and he's leaving in the summer. Ian Graham, who has had a very prominent role in terms of the analytics side, also is going in the summer. Um, And it's expected that there'll be other um, departures um, from that area as well. Um, So, Dave, what, what is going on? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go, go, yeah, go for it. Go. Ian Graham is, I would say, the third most important person in terms of the success that we've had after Jurgen and Michael Edwards, and his departure mm. does worry me. That that is that is a point of concern. Now there are obviously people within the club who've worked very closely with him and in his department and maybe one of them is ready to step up someone like will spearman but we don't know if he's going to stay at the club he might well leave as well now julian ward i'm not overly concerned about because i don't i don't know if julian ward is good at his job because we don't really have any evidence to suggest that he is or isn't julian ward was given the job when edwards left and in truth it was the wrong decision both in hindsight because he's leaving a year later. But at the time I said, I don't know that this is the right decision as well. You can go back and listen to it in our archives. I said, I don't know that we're doing this the right way. Shouldn't we be doing some sort of external recruitment on this? Shouldn't we be looking around Europe to see is there is there a better candidate for this role? You're not talking about replacing Damien Camoli here. You're talking about replacing Michael Edwards, who's the best in the business at what he does. And Julian Ward, yes, he he had done well as the the he was in charge of looking after the the loans. Um, he was promoted to assistant sporting director, but he was only assistant sporting director for about six months before Edwards let the club know he was leaving. So I, I didn't think Ward anyway, was the right the person anyway. Yeah, and it was reported that he didn't want the job as well. Yeah, you know, he didn't probably didn't feel he was ready for it. Yeah, yeah. Because because he wasn't, and and that's not his fault. And I'm sure he'll go somewhere else, and he'll be very very good at whatever it is he he lands with next. He, there will be there will be clubs that line up to bring him in because he's a very smart man, and he is good at what he does. But what he does isn't a sporting director position. So like even Michael Edwards, it, it he had to sort of build that role up and up and up like remember he was technical director first and then he was given more responsibility and then he became it was he was head of head of analytics i think or head of something to do with research to begin with then he became technical director so his step up was more marginal whereas for ward it was 
your loan manager and now within six months you're going to be the sporting director so get ready so i'm not overly concerned about ward leaving i am obviously concerned about who we might appoint to replace them there are great candidates out there um i think one person that stands out as someone that we should probably be kicking the tires on is uh, Christoph Freund, the Red Bull Salzburg sporting director, who has done yes. an immense job what, since being there. Um, so I think he's definitely someone. Michael Zork, I yeah. think, is worth a look. We've seen links to Sven Mislintat in, in recent times. Mislintat's a great scout, but he's not a sporting director. I, I haven't been impressed by him as a sporting director but if you brought him in under Michael Zork and put him in charge of recruitment, then I think that would be a, a great role for him. But then what do you do with Dave Fallows and Barry Hunter? Rumours are they might both leave as well, so we'll have to wait and see. But Zork has that existing relationship with Klopp. Most importantly, he has Klopp's respect, which I think makes the makes it a bit easier um, for them to work together. Another name that's worth considering is Paul Mitchell currently the Monaco sporting director. Um, he has done some good work. He was uh, he was at he was at Sunderland. Uh, no, that's not, not Sunderland. He was at Southampton. Uh, he helped build kind of the team that was there under Pochettino. He was involved in the recruitment there. He went to Spurs with Pochettino. He didn't like how things were operated and that Daniel Levy had so much of a say in things. That, he said himself that was his dream job, but it turned out to be a nightmare. He ends up going to... Red Bull Salzburg was important there. Then he went to Monaco, and he's he's done a pretty good job at Monaco. He's done he's done quite well with some sales, and he's made some good signings. Now some iffy signings as well, but he's not working with the kind of resources he'd have here uh, in terms of who you know who would work with him. He doesn't have the same level of analysis, analytics, uh, scouting that he would have here. Um. So another name that's come up recently um, is that of Cristiano Giuntoli, who is the Napoli sporting director. Now, his contract is up in 2024. He's been at Napoli for nine years. He's done a very good job. And obviously, this past summer, he put together maybe one of the best transfer windows anyone has ever seen. So, you know, he's, he's a name worthy of consideration and um, one other name i'd throw out there is um is camonero who is the former sporting director of atletico madrid and he did uh, a very good job at atletico madrid building the the first and second great simeone teams not the most recent team which obviously hasn't been very good but he built kind of everything pre, I think, 2019 he left, which is the same summer that basically all their players left and got sold and Simeone had the, the rug swept out from underneath them. So there are people out there. Obviously, the other one to mention here would be um, Luis Campos, who is at Paris Saint-Germain. Now, his current title at Paris Saint-Germain is Football Advisor. So he's not the sporting director. He's a football advisor. And I believe he's working not just with PSG, but with one or two other clubs as well. Kind of yeah. like a, a freelance sporting director, if you will. 
So he's contracted to them rather than under contract with them. So he's he's an incredible talent scout. He built the Monaco team that won. Well, first of all, yeah, he built the Monaco team that won won the league there, um, which is you know Falcao, Matinho, Hamas. Hamas was gone. Fabinho, um, Thomas Lamar. He he discovered Mbappe. It was like that that team. He built that team. Then he went to Lille and he built a team that won the league there as well. So he's phenomenally good as a talent spotter. He's phenomenally good as a recruiter. He would probably be my top choice, right. just based on track record. But Christoph Freund is is brilliant as well. So either of those two, and I'm I'm chuffed. But right, uh, just with Freund. Ian Graham is going to be tough to replace. That's that's what I so yeah. I, that's what I'm saying. I, I think sporting director is probably easier for us to go and get a good one. Ian yeah. Graham, I I don't know who you get. Like Ted Nutson, I I don't know that he's going to. You'd have to convince him to sell Stats Bomb. Do you know? Like that's mm. the, that's the level of person you're looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. It, it, well, we know uh, Ian Graham's a super genius and. Uh, so are you know various members of his team, and I don't know if maybe one of his team potentially could step up into that role. Um, but again, you know it, it it is quite a significant, sizable gap, and you know we've already seen that there have been gaps in you know commercial, in the medical department, um, and there's been a lot of turnover of key personnel over the last twelve months. Certainly. It's not something you would expect of a club that, you know, is said to be as well run as, as Liverpool. So, you know, there perhaps are underlying things there which, which are going on, which, which uh, are causing this um, level of turnover. Uh, but just just quickly before we move on from, from that sporting director role, uh, somebody you've been a big fan of um, over the years, um, Monchi. Do you think the, he would no, be... No, the, mojo, the mojo's gone. The mojo's gone. No, he... he, he... He was incredible in his first run there. Went to Roma, it didn't work. He went back, and it, it worked for a time. But the last couple of years yeah. have just been... They've just not been great. I, I, look, he, he is a genius, and he's hes brilliant at what he does. I, I kind of feel like he needs a break from football. Like, mm. he's been doing that job for a long, long time... And always at clubs where it's more frenetic than a normal club, like Sevilla are always in financial problems because their ownership are just an atrocity. They're just, they're always in financial trouble. And when he went to Roma, they were in a weird situation as well where they had new owners, but the owners didn't really know what they were doing. And they'd had a couple of odd summers and it was just, it was all a little bit strange he is brilliant. There's no doubt. He is brilliant at what he does. But I kind of feel like he either he either needs to stay at Sevilla forever, or he just needs to take a break before he goes somewhere else. Hmm. That's fair enough. But yeah, again, going to be very interesting in terms of what the club does is filling these positions, and it may be looking to potentially wait if a sale is going to materialise or he likes to materialise over the next several months the club may feel that it's better to hold on and just manage what they have until new ownership comes in and they can decide who to fill certain key positions with. But, uh, yeah, again, 
Um, some big, big decisions to make on that front too. Now, finally, Dave, um, we have a transfer window uh, coming just, up. Just before we go, just before we go to that, yeah, we obviously saw the news that came out in the Echo yesterday that uh, another there's another departure from the club, which is Ed Rice, um, yes. who is the who, whose title, according to this article in the Echo, the Echo call him. Um, the, the, the line is, Liverpool have seen another departure from behind the scenes as Ed Rice has left his role as partnerships manager at Liverpool. Okay, so partnerships manager. And I saw loads of people use this as an excuse to have a big tantrum on Twitter yesterday. Now, firstly, I was yesterday years old before I'd ever heard Ed Rice's name. Now, no disrespect to him. I'm sure he's good at his job. I've been on Wikipedia this morning. And I want to give you some names. Laura Murphy. Elizabeth Adams. Yeah. Stacey Howells. Daryl Page. Mm-hmm. Rachel Butler. David Evans. Jack Best. Yeah. Louisa Buchanan. Right? Louisa Buchanan is partnerships manager at Liverpool. Jack Best, partnerships manager at Liverpool. David Evans, partnerships manager at Liverpool. Rachel Butler, Partnerships manager at Liverpool. Daryl Page, senior executive, partnerships at Liverpool. Stacey Howells, senior executive, partnerships at Liverpool. Elizabeth right. Adams, partnerships operation manager at Liverpool. Uh, Laura Murphy, partnerships, op- partnerships manager at Liverpool. And Jonathan Kane, vice president, global partnerships at Liverpool Football Club. Never heard of any of these people. I'm sure they're great at their jobs. I'm not looking to disrespect them in any way. But None of us would have known Ed Rice had left the club because he was he wasn't a decision maker or a department head. He was just a normal guy in a job who got a promotion at Glamorgan. He got an opportunity to take a step up in his career to go to Glamorgan. Like and people are using this as a as a reason to have tantrums. As you've mentioned before we, we went live on the mics, um Matt Scammell left the club as he was the commercial director. He yep. joined in June 2020, uh, was there till December 2021. He'd been at United for years, came to us, was there a year and seven seven months and left to go and become chief commercial officer of Formula E. Do you, off the top of your head, know who the current commercial director is? I should do, but I couldn't tell you. <laughs> it's Ben Latty is the gentleman's name. Right. Who was, was with Liverpool... Well, to give his career rundown, he started off with Chelsea, was a sales and marketing coordinator for a year, spent five years at Fulham in different sales roles, was the global marketing partnerships manager for the NBA for over a year, joined Liverpool, was with us from 2013 to 2021, when he left to become the group commercial director of Bristol Sport, who I think are the Bristol rugby team, and he joined us again as commercial director in May of last year. And none of us right. had heard about it. Unless you were paying uber close attention, you hadn't heard his name. So when people start throwing the toys because the partnerships manager, the partnerships manager, but he wasn't the partnerships manager. He was a partnerships manager at the club because we have five others. So like right. <laughs> people having these tantrums, like we saw it the same with the, the club doctor leaving or you know, and, and not being replaced straight away. Well, the club doctor left 
right at the end of the summer and left us in a bind. It takes time to find somebody qualified to be the club doctor at a club. But the club doctor is not in charge of preventing injuries. And Mm. I saw loads of people having major tantrums. Oh, there's no club doctor. There's no club doctor. This is why we're having all these injuries. They've got nothing to do with injury prevention. You don't go to your doctor before you get sick. You go after you get sick. It's the same thing at the club. I'm trying to use Mm. examples of people that were there before and, well, they've done loads of work with injury prevention. No, they haven't. They wrote a couple of papers. Shut up. Mm. The club doctor does not oversee injury prevention. The sports scientists do. That's their department. So, like, when we see these players leave, we we meet or these people leave, just just take a step back and consider, had you heard their name before? And if Mm. not then it's likely not going to make a huge difference to how your day goes. <laughs> but such is uh, social media. Always yeah. uh, like to uh, make mountains out of molehills. But, uh, right. Um, okay, so one more topic before we conclude this, Dave, and that is to do with one of our favourite times of the year, the transfer window. So we've got another one coming up, starting in just, well, less than a fortnight now as we record this. Uh, with a January transfer window, and there have been strong links with two players um, over, certainly one of the players for a number of months, but another player, very strong links emerging in the last few days. Um, So the players I'm talking about, obviously, are Jude Bellingham and Enzo Fernandez, and uh, two of the most sought-after, highly-rated young um, midfielders in world football. Now, the cost to bring them in w- would be quite significant. Obviously, one would cost more than the other in all likelihood. Uh, Jude Bellingham is not likely to go for much less than £100 million, pounds, um, including add-ons. Um, whereas we know that, or it's reported at least, that Enzo Fernandez has a release clause of €120 million Euros if we wanted to um, prize him away from Benfica. Um, though I'd, I'd suspect that you know certainly there would be room for negotiation with uh, Benfica, and the actual final agreed sale fee would be uh, comfortably less than that um, release clause figure. Though obviously there will be a lot of interest in that player too. So um, you know, first of all, we we do know that those players are I- exceptional. Um, but you know, one one of the things I put out this week, Dave, on on Twitter, uh, was a thread just to explain that, in my view, affording both players is is possible. I I've pointed out that not long ago, um, you know, in 2018, 19, and 20, um, the club spent 450 million pounds towards payments towards transfer fee instalments. Um, so as is common uh, practice. Um, transfer fees are not all paid um, in, in one single lump sum. They they sometimes are, but they are very much the exception rather than the norm. Um, but 450 million was spent. Now, um, to put it into greater context, though, during that period, the club did bring in 250 million um, in uh, receipts from transfer deals, uh, most notably the one for Felipe Coutinho. Um, so that that still meant that the club had to spend. Um, 200 million from club revenue towards uh, financing those deals. And what I said is that even if both deals were done for around just over 200 million pounds, um, 
because there's a possibility of spreading those payments over, say, three instalments, you know, your first instalment might only be, say, eighty million pounds, and then the remaining remaining two might be around sixty million. Um, so, so that is how I explain that. Look, in the past, we've had, you know, even as recently as twenty nineteen, a hundred and seventy five million of spend on transfer fee instalments. So. To cover the cost of 80 million for those two players would, would in my view, be uh, achievable. Now, granted, there are other deals that have yet to be paid off. Um, I think uh, Jota has one final instalment due in July 2023. We also have um, instalments due for um, Diaz and Konate too. Um, but compared to like Manchester United, who this week it has been reported their transfer debt is 307 million, Liverpool's transfer debt is significantly below that now um, but largely because there hasn't been a, a great deal of spend over the last few years um, so D- Dave do, do you agree that it is feasible or do you have a different view no I, I think it's entirely feasible but I, I do think I think the Jota deal has longer to go because if I remember correctly we agreed to pay more than Wolves were looking for to pay a very small amount up front. I think we only paid about four or five million up front for him. And I thought that one was spread over five years. I know the the amortization is five years, but I thought that we were paying the fee over five years as well. I, I'm happy to be wrong on that. But I do think you could go to Benfica and Dortmund and say, look, we are happy to pay your asking price. We'll even pay we'll even pay a little bit more than your asking price if we can spread that deal out over a longer period of time. So rather than three years, maybe you do it over four years or you do it over five years because these are very young players. Jude Bellingham will be 20 next summer. Not till June does he turn 20. Enzo turns 22 in January. So in five years, when you've paid Enzo off, he's only 27. He's in his prime. And if at that point he wants to go experience something else at Real Madrid or somewhere, well, then that's fine. Mm. You'll sell him on, you'll make a profit. The same thing goes for Jude. You could pay Jude off by the time he's 25. And then by when he's 27, if he wanted to go and do something you know, somewhere else, you could, again, you'll make a huge profit. So... I definitely think it's absolutely feasible. Like <clears throat> people get caught up in the fee and forget that you don't pay it all in one lump sum. Now we paid a large chunk of the Darwin money in in one lump sum. Like we paid, I believe, close to forty five million in one lump sum to get Darwin. But that's what Benfica were looking for at the time. Benfica's financial situation seems to have improved a little bit since last summer. And I think they'd be willing to do an Enzo deal over three, four, maybe even five years. I think Dortmund would be willing to do the same over on, on a deal for Jude Bellingham if they're getting their asking price. Now, like you said, Enzo has a has a release clause. It's different to a buyout clause. And I've seen some people say, well, we can't do that because you'd have to pay it all up in one front, one lump sum. No, that, that's a buyout clause. So on a buyout clause, basically what happens is we would give the money. So let's take the most the most notable example of a buyout clause in football history is Neymar. Yeah. So Neymar had a 198 million pound buyout clause in his Barcelona contract. Yeah. PSG 
gave Neymar 198 million and then he gave that money to Barcelona. That's yeah. basically how that works on a buyout. It's the same yeah. thing when Chelsea bought Kepa. They gave Kepa 72 million pounds. Kepa then gave that money to Barcelona or to uh, Athletic Bilbao. That's how yeah. that works. A release clause is different. You can negotiate the terms on a release clause. You can negotiate a payment structure on a release clause. We used a release clause on Ibrahima Kanate, not a buyout clause. So we mm. didn't pay for Ibu in one lump. We paid for him over three years. And I, I believe we might have even paid a couple of million, literally a couple, one or two million more to Leipzig to structure a deal that was favorable to us. And I believe we could do the same for Enzo. So if I'm if I'm right in thinking, 120 million euro right now is about 103 million Great British pounds. Yeah. If we were to say to them, we will give you 107 million pounds. I don't need a VPN. I've got nothing to hide. <laughs> this is what I used to tell myself before I hooked up with LibertyShield.com. Not only is my home internet now fully encrypted. But I can now access all the websites I want, whenever I want, and do so from absolutely anywhere. As a Liverpool fan, I love to know I can now watch every match, regardless of whether it's on UK TV or not. My Liberty Shield VPN makes sure nothing is blocked and guarantees me super fast streaming speed throughout that match. You can get connected right now with their software package, which includes a 48 hour no obligation free trial and instant access to their apps for Apple, Android, Fire TV, PC, Mac, and Android TV. Or go a step further like I have and get one of their pre-configured VPN routers. These small but powerful devices allow you to easily connect every device in your home to VPN, making it the perfect solution for smart TVs, mag boxes, and games consoles. Visit LibertyShield.com today and use coupon code AIVPN25 to get 25% off at checkout. We, but we want this deal to go over four years. So we will pay you $25 million a year, yeah. either each summer or we can do, you know, each transfer window. So each January we could give you 12 and a half, each summer 12 and a half, whatever. We will give you a little bit extra to get this deal done, then, yeah, you could do it over four years, 25 million up front, 25 million next summer, the summer after, the summer after that, and then go to Dortmund and say, we're happy to pay uh, 110 million, say, for Jude. We want to do it over four years. Here's 27.5 million. The other thing you could do is you could say to Benfica, we'll give you the bit extra, but we want a lower upfront payment you go to Dortmund and say, we'll give you a little bit less, but we'll give you a bigger upfront payment. So you could give Dortmund, say, 40 million in year one, Benfica 20 million in year one. The following year, you give Benfica a bigger fee, you give Dortmund a smaller fee. You can, you can manipulate the finances of it so that it all fits within your budget and both selling clubs are happy with the deals that they get. And the buying club obviously is happy because... They're not having that extortionate initial outlay and they're getting the players they want. And if we were to sign Enzo and Jude, that is transformative to our team. That is, that's Virgil and Alisson 2.0. Now, yeah. 
obviously, as I've said before, we need three midfielders this summer. Between January and the summer, we need three. We need one in each position, right side, holding midfield, and left side. We need a starter on the right side, uh, a future starter, but more a player who can develop and become that starter in the middle role. And on the left side, you're looking for somebody to rotate with Thiago, probably take on more of the game time than Thiago so you can manage Thiago out. So I was looking at this the other day, Mo, and I, I mentioned this to Carl. It's something I was going to write for the website, but I, I, I'll, you know, I, it's easier to talk about it. So I was thinking, if we were to sign, let's say we go this month and we sign Manuel Ugarth from Sporting Lisbon, right? Holding yep. midfielder, 21 years of age, huge potential. Sporting will probably want about 35 million for him. So he comes in to be Fabinho's backup. You could also play him as that more defensive eight with Fabinho. But say mm. primarily he's the the backup eight, uh, six. And then in the summer we go and we get Jude and we get Enzo. So for the right-sided role, we would have Jude as the starter. Let's And let's say we play 60 games a season. Jude is the starter. Yeah. Jude is going to start 45 games a season. And then he'll be mm. available as a sub in the rest. And Henderson, who will continue to have a role as club captain, he gets 15 starts. They're yeah. cup games, they're dead rubbers in the Champions League, lesser games in the Premier League, but also he gets a lot of sub-appearances. Then we take Curtis Jones, and we loan him for a year, and we say, you go and yeah. develop, and when you come back, you're going to take Henderson's role. And then when he takes that role in 2024, he gets a greater share of the minutes than Henderson would, which means you can be more careful in managing Jude. So you've got you end up with Jude and Curtis as your long-term pair, but Jude and Henderson as your short-term pair. In the holding midfield role, let's say Fabinho gets tw- uh, 35 starts and Ugart gets 25 starts. And over the yeah. next two years, that swaps, and that allows us to develop uh, Besetic, and he eventually mm-hmm. usurps Fabinho in three years maybe, and he becomes the backup slash competition for Ugart. And in the left-sided role, let's say Enzo starts 40 and Thiago starts 20. You loan Tyler Morton out for another year or two. You extend Thiago's contract because why wouldn't you? There's no reason he can't play till 35, 36. Look Look at Luka Modric. If you manage him properly, you can get him to 36 and get greatness out of him until then. But it's Enzo and Thiago. And then if Morton develops the right way or if somebody else comes along and develops in that role. Maybe Bobby Clark develops in that role. Maybe that's where he ends up, because we saw the passing yesterday. Then, all of a sudden, with with three buys for this year, you could basically have sorted your midfield for the next eight years by using these three, the academy youngsters that we have, and the existing starters that we have. So it is a big outlay. You're talking, say... 245 million for three players but then you don't really need to address that midfield for a long long time if a player pops up that you think oh he's a must buy you can go and get him but it's no longer a thing where you're every summer you're thinking geez our midfield is old our midfield is broken down you've got three young stud midfielders 
three experienced veterans, two of whom are still of a very high quality, and then three young midfielders in Jones, Besetic and Morton, who might well develop into really good squad players. And if they don't, you just sell them on and you can bring others in. But this one big outlay would mean that that area of the team is settled for the long term and you don't need to address it again. Yeah, that's right. And then I suppose the only other question really is, so if Bobby doesn't extend his contract and in the next several weeks agrees to a pre-agreement for a club overseas, um, we potentially do need to bring in uh, another forward. Mm. Uh, and that's where I'd be looking at someone like a Marcus Turam. He's yeah. not he's not the it. most refined player, but he's big, powerful, quick, talented, versatile, and he's out of contract in the summer. So his wages won't be obscene. We talked about him on the transfer committee pod. He's probably only on I'm not sure what you estimated, twenty five or so at the moment. Yes. So I think yeah. he might take sixty, sixty five, which is about a third mm. of what Bobby currently owns or currently earns. So if you take him replacing Bobby, and maybe you still have to look at maybe bringing it. So, so what you would have then is you'd have Mo and Harvey as the right-sided options, and Ben Doak for you know cup appearances. You'd have Darwin and Turam and Cade Gordon for the middle role, and then Diaz Jota and then Frauendorf and Musilowski for the left-sided role. And obviously Jota can play centrally as well. And he can play on the right. So he could be, you could look at Jota as he's actually the fourth forward and he's the primary backup in all three roles. Turam is the fifth forward. He's the next up in all three roles. And Harvey can play obviously some midfield minutes if needed as well. But someone like a Turam would make a lot of sense because his wages, even with what you'd imagine, you know, let's say he comes in on 70 grand, let's say 60 grand a week, right? On a three-year deal, sorry, a five-year deal, that's about 15 million, plus he gets a signing bonus, which by general terms is a year's wage up front. So it's basically a six-year deal paid in five years, and it's 18 million. But the wage savings on Bobby, like if you keep Bobby around, he's not going to take a big pay cut, I don't believe. He's on about $9 million a year now. So two years of Bobby is $18 million. Yeah. And he'd probably get a signing bonus as well. So re-signing Bobby for two years would probably be more expensive than signing Turam for five years. And if Turam wants to leave in a couple of years, he'll have really good resale value, whereas Bobby will have no value. None at all. In the same Mm. way, if we put Henderson on the market tomorrow, he's got no value. You're not getting Mm. anything for Henderson. Whatever fee you get, you're going to have to give him to make up the difference in wages. Like if Leicester said, we want Henderson, we'll give you 10 or 15 million. Okay, well, we're paying Henderson 20 million over next season, the season after. How much yeah. are you going to pay him? Oh, well, we're going to pay him 100 grand a week. Right, so there's a 10 million difference. So the fee that you're giving us, we're now giving him to make up the difference in wages. So mm. it makes sense to let Bobby leave, bring in a Turam, 
help develop those young players or give give more opportunities to those young players. And look, come next summer, 2024, then if you want to go and bring in another expensive forward, then you're going to be in a better position to do so because you've already addressed the midfield. Your defence will need yeah. a little bit of attention come 2024 because Matip will have aged out. But in defence, you do have sellable assets in Joe Gomez and Costa Simicus. So the defence could actually be done this summer and pay for itself, whereas yeah. the midfield and forward line can't be. They're going to need, they're going to need investment. Yeah, totally. And uh, you know that's why, you know, though some fans feel that the only way to deal with this is to bring in significant outside investment um, based on club revenues as they currently are. Uh, there's still significant amount of business that is absolutely feasible. Those yeah, three- look, we know that last summer the plan was Chuameni and Darwin. It wasn't one or the other. Some people have it in their minds that we only bought Darwin because the Chuameni deal didn't happen. That's not the case at all. The Chuameni money is sitting there. The plan for last summer was Chuameni and Darwin and then Jude for 2023. That yeah. was the grand plan. Yes. We got Darwin. We may well get Jude, but the Chuameni money is still sitting there. Now, he wouldn't have been as expensive as Dar- as Enzo, mm. but I'd imagine the upfront fee, which is all that would be sitting there, is what was to be paid upfront, yeah. was probably about the same. Mm. Yeah, and and, and um, you know you're right. The the funds are there. They you know they weren't spent. They absolutely were intended to be spent, and uh, you know that is what can be used to get some business done in January. And you know not all reports. I mean you know J- James Pierce is suggesting that the club won't be doing much if anything, um, but others have suggested otherwise. Um, and there's clearly a need to do some business in January because the stakes are too big ultimately, aren't they, David? Yeah. If um, we sit still and don't do anything in January and we let top four slip, that alone in terms of just the TV money from the Champions League um, compared to Europa or worse um, is probably in the region of 50 to 60 million. That's mm. not even to mention the impact on commercial and match day. Um, so Plus, if, if you end up in the Europa League, you're not just screwing this season; you're screwing next season as well. You're not winning a Premier no. League title while trying to compete in the Europa League. No chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're better off to miss Europe altogether if you don't get top four. Mm. Um, now, I wouldn't. My my own personal thoughts on James Jimbo Pierce are are well known and documented, so I won't say anything on this podcast. But the two, the two. There are three Liverpool journalists who, in my view, are worth listening to. One is Paul Joyce, who doesn't really say anything at all anyway. Um, And the other two are the younger two. They're David Lynch and Neil Jones, both of whom are significantly better connected at the club than Jimbo is. Mm. And neither of them have shot down... Both of them have been asked, and neither of them have shot down the potential of signing Enzo and Jude. Yeah. And if they're not shooting it down, but they're they're urging caution as as is their you know their job. If they're not shooting it down, I think they've been told this is a real possibility. David Lynch is as they it baffles me. Like I've had issues with him in the past, but he's a very good journalist. I don't understand how David Lynch is not employed by one of the main national newspapers to cover the club. 
I really don't understand how that's the case because he used to work for the club. He, he is really well connected at the club and him and Neil Jones to me are the two most honest of these journalists as well. I, I don't I, I don't look at anybody other than obviously Ornstein is a different case because he's a national reporter. But yes. when it comes to the club, it's Joyce, it's Lynch, and it's Jones. And nobody else is worth listening to. Yes. Melissa Reddy doesn't cover Liverpool anymore before anyone says her name. She works for Sky as a, as a national correspondent and yes. does very little on Liverpool anymore. Um, Andy Hunter, you never hear his name anymore. He spends more time covering covering the Ev. Basco. Mm-hmm. I mean, Bascom had great contacts back in the day. Doesn't say a whole lot now. He's he's yeah. very very quiet. Uh, Dominic King works for the Daily Mail, and frankly, anyone yeah. that works for or is associated with the Daily Mail or any of the journalists can can take a very long walk off a very short plank, as far as I'm concerned. Um, they're one step removed from from the sun. So when when the two lads Lynch and Lynch wrote about it and and um Jones spoke about it neither of them ruled it out they said it's 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 tough to do which well, obviously would be because it's two big deals but yeah. it's it's definitely something that's that's there and that's doable that's a real thing and the journalists who are reporting it from Portugal and from Argentina I'm told are quite good they're not the type who'd say it unless there was real traction to it regards to Enzo. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they certainly don't come across as uh, uh, Romano wannabes, let's put it that way. No, no, definitely not. They're not They're not Ben Jacobs or something like that. Um, and obviously, look, we know we know with Jude, it's been so so widely talked about um, that Jude is, is something we're definitely working on. Everybody knows that. I wouldn't believe anything that comes out of Christian Falk's mouth either. But I, I do think he probably is on the right track with his say, statement that um, Jude's parents are kind of pushing him towards Liverpool. And based on what Jude has said, and obviously we saw what we saw Agent Henderson and Agent Trent um, putting in the graft in Qatar, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if we landed both. It really wouldn't. Yeah, well, I mean... It's been a while since we did big, big business, um, but we have done it in the past. And uh, you know, there's clubs around us um, who have generated significantly less revenue, who've gone out and spent big. And uh, you know, we we have the funds, we have the means. Um, and you know, I covered that on Twitter this past week. And uh, I absolutely believe that uh, you know, even without bringing outside investment in, you know, we can get some very significant business done. Um, and, the other uh, thing, before we go, the other thing I just wanted to mention yeah. is this this idea that FSG, you know, if they're still the owners and we miss out on top four, that means we'll spend nothing. And I disagree because I think if you look at the track record of American owners, the the, the Glazers and the Cronkies at Arsenal, it's when they're out of top four that they've spent because the goal is to get back into top four because mm-hmm. the champions league is where the real money is. And if we consider that in the summer of, um, 
the summer of 2023, we might be out of European Cup football. Yeah. Looking at Arsenal, probably in. City, definitely in. Yeah. Spurs, probably in. And maybe United in. And then maybe Chelsea and Newcastle spending heavily. I think they'd have to they'd have to spend, or they, or they would. That would be it. It would be over. Mm. You would have no choice. You, if we miss out, I I don't think these deals hinge on getting top four. Is is my honest view of it. I think now. I think they can be done, and I think the want from our side will be there to do them, even without top four. The question yeah. would be though. Is Jude Bellingham or Enzo Fernandez willing to join a Europa League team? Well, and they become harder deals to do. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I think, they, to be fair, they become even more important deals to do. They, they do. But then, you know, as we've seen um, over the last five, six, seven, eight years, there have been some very big name players who have joined. You know, your Man Uniteds. Um, your Chelsea's, your Arsenal's, when they have fallen out of the top four mm. uh, to go into the Europa League. Um, you know, like Rafael Varane, multiple-time Champions League winner, happy to join United, even though they'd slipped into the Europa League for this season. And, um, you know, likewise, you know, we've seen with other players that have joined um, Chelsea, for example, you know, when, you know, they've slipped out of the top four um, on two or three occasions over the last, you know, seven, yeah. eight, five years. Um and yet they've still managed to get some, you know, big business done too. So it's certainly not the end of the world. And I think that, uh, especially, with, I mean, I, I wouldn't know about Enzo, but certainly Jude and his family seem to be the types who are a bit more measured and look at things longer term. And even if Liverpool did miss out on top four, I don't think that necessarily put them off um, the club. I, I think they'd see that, okay, yes, it has been a blip, but um, it is a blip and, you know, Liverpool should... With, with you joining, um, stand a good chance of getting back in the top four and potentially challenge for the title again with, with one or two other bits of inspired business on top of that. So Exactly. You know, yeah. Exactly. Great. Excellent, Dave. So, you know, we, we've gone for quite some time. We've been around the houses and then been around the houses again, but we've covered an immense amount there, um, covering all business aspects of the club in terms of ownership and transfer dealings and all other matters beside. So really, really thank you for your time in joining me on the podcast. Is there anything you'd like to plug uh, before you go? Uh, Daily Red will be returning. Um, the, the World Cup is pretty much over. It'll be back. And then obviously two-footed every day. Um, there'll be the return of post-match Raw. Scouted will continue to roll along. And at some point, I will nail down Downey to do on the books and I'll nail down Tandon to do um, an old school and coming in January is the relaunch of the Buzz podcast so moving away from the football sphere a little bit we'll be looking at TV shows movies having different guests on to discuss you know old movies old TV shows and obviously whatever the hottest thing going is right now so yeah, that's to come in January, so that's one to, I think I think to be excited about. And there might be something else coming on Anfield Index. It's a bit of a a bit of a secret at the minute, so I'll just keep that one under wraps. Well, we all like secrets, so look forward to hearing about that one as well, then, Dave. But uh, yeah, I mean, this will be probably my last time on um, 
Anfield Index uh, for this year. I'm not going before anyone gets too excited. Um, so as, as Anfield Index's resident part-timer, um, I'll be back at some point in the new year. Um, so for those celebrating, have a very lovely Christmas and a very enjoyable new year. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.